It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. I want to tell you my secret now. I see dead people. Silent Green is people! Need my sister and my daughter! Rosebud. What's in the box? And like that, he's gone. Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and we are here with the Slate Spoiler Special podcast on Blade Runner 2049, the new 30 years later sequel. Am I right? Is that how many 35 years later? 35 years? Blade Runner's 1982, but it takes place 30 years later? Yes. Yeah, so depending if you're talking about movie oh, time yes, or sorry. real time, I right? <laughs> the 35 and or 30 years later sequel to the Ridley Scott classic Blade Runner from 1982. When you think about it, it's rather odd that there hasn't been an attempt in all of our culture of rebooting and sequels since to, to make another Blade Runner. I wonder if there were many failed attempts. I guess that's true. I think this has been in the works for a few years, and I think they wanted to get Christopher Nolan at some point. Uh, I Probably the reason for that is that the original movie is pretty uncommercial and didn't actually do very well. I think it made... I guess it made like $6 million on its opening weekend. Anyway, I, I believe it was a disappointment. Right. It was one of those cult successes that slowly crept up on right. being a cult success. So I should introduce the two of you. I'm here in the Slate Studios with Forrest Wickman, Slate's culture editor. Hi, Forrest. Hey, Dana. And with Sam Adams, the editor of Browbeat, Slate's culture blog. Hello, Dana. And before we get started on this discussion, let's just listen to a clip to get a little bit of a sense of the overwhelming soundscape of Blade Runner 2049. <laughs> There is an order to things. That's what we do here. We keep order. The world is built on a wall that separates kind. Tell either side there's no wall. You bought a war. You're a cop. I had your job once. I was good at it. I know. So Sam just saw Blade Runner last night. You're the freshest, right? I saw it a couple of weeks ago now. And you, Forrest? Oh, man, I think it was only a week ago, right? But yeah, I'm really glad Sam is here because I saw it at the same time as Dana. And I have to say this movie like pretty much went out of my head immediately. A, str- a strange thing for a movie that works so hard to overwhelm yep. you, you to only overwhelm your senses. Would you agree, Sam? Did you feel like it didn't leave an impression? I, I mean, I think it left an impression, but it's sort of more of like a sense memory for me. Like, I'm not, it's somewhat like the original. Like, I remember like kind of a mood and images and, you know, because I saw it last night, probably like some of the plot. But like there are scenes where, you know, I would have to check my notes to remember like a single line from them. But in the mood of kind of a traditional feeling out your your general emotional response to the movie, are you yeses or noes before we start our discussion? 
I'm a yes on this movie as spectacle. And if you're a big fan of the original movie, if you're a big fan of the original movie, you will probably like this one. If you are not a fan of the original movie or have not seen it, I think you will probably not like this movie. And I think I suspect that a lot of people are going to go see this movie and be kind of baffled and bored by it because it is not as uh, entertaining as most movies of of this budget, like for better and for worse. Sam? Uh, I guess I'm a qualified no. I'm really kind of right on the fence with this. As far says, I mean, it is a beautiful movie. I think we're going to probably talk quite a bit about Roger Deakins' uh, cinematography in this. I mean, it, it is incredible to look at. There are a lot of great visual ideas in it. Um, I think the kind of conceptual ideas underneath it are not that interesting. Um, it's extremely long um, and and slow in a way that I don't really think that the material merits. And I think I was probably would have been more of a qualified yes until the last act, um, which we'll probably talk about it in detail as well. But I think it's doing pretty well. And then it takes a pretty sharp dive at one point, probably about 40 minutes from the end. OK, I'm very curious where you think that moment is. But let's set up the world that we're in as Blade Runner 2049 begins. And I guess we will assume in this discussion that you have at least some familiarity. I mean, it's soaked so deeply into our science fiction DNA that you have some general memory of what the world of Blade Runner was like, right? This sort of um, post-capitalist global world where Los Angeles seemed to resemble Tokyo with, you know, these sort of giant advertisements projected on blimps and that it was this constantly reigning neo-noir world that was also sort of dystopically international. Is that a fair summary of its world? Uh, yeah. And Atari and Pan Am are still around in the year 2019 in the original. <laughs> and in this movie, they're still around in 2049. Oh, yeah. nice. You noticed those brand names? Yeah. The movie is basically like if you've ever been to like the, the Shinjuku district of, of Tokyo, it's like someone kind of took that and set it down in Southern California. Like that's the look of the first one. Right. It's and like then being inside a big pinball machine. And then caused some sort of unnamed nuclear or environmental disaster to rain down flakes of ash all the time. Yeah. I mean, that's a kind of a question to start with right there. I, I it sounds like you were kind of hazy on what exactly has happened in this world, Dana. I, while editing your review, kind of kept the language very ambiguous, both to avoid spoilers and because I didn't totally understand myself, I think. Sam, do you have a sense of what exactly like what this blackout that they keep talking about was? I have a, a very hazy sense. I mean, like, I don't think they're specific. I mean, you, you sort of assume that there was some sort of blackout that basically kind of wiped out the world's memory, everything but paper. So, you you know, that seems like kind of an EMP, some sort of nuclear attack. Um, and there doesn't seem to be a world. There is there's people live on other planets. There's a mention of kind of nine now nine different worlds. I think it was maybe just one in the original or, or they're off world colonies in the first. So we, unspecified. It doesn't seem like that many people live on Earth. You don't really get a sense of anything beyond L.A. and San Diego, which in this case is basically like a big garbage dump for L.A. Apparently, it's like garbage and orphans and nothing else. Yeah, I don't think they're specific about what caused the blackout, but that was sort of, that seemed like kind of the natural assumption. For right. Me. So the only people left on the planet, essentially, are the very poor, those who can't afford to get to the off-world colonies, and these Blade Runners, which Ryan Gosling's main character is one of, which is to say they're cops that are in charge specifically of terminating replicants and the replicants themselves. So how have the replicants changed since 2019 when the first movie was set? We get the main difference in a combination of like a 
sort of in case you missed it message uh, before the movie starts. And then. Oh, yeah. There's a meet... long expositional bullet pointed yeah. kind of presentation. Five, five paragraphs. I yep. counted. Yep. <laughs> Which I was kind of surprised by because I feel like if you haven't seen the original movie, like this new one is not really going to work for you. So when they summarized the whole original movie, I was kind of surprised they even tried. Um, but anyway, the main there is a new generation of replicants and the main difference as we learn through a fight with Dave Bautista, aka Drax from Guardians of the Galaxy, in the opening scene, the new ones are basically more obedient. Uh, the Dave Bautista replicant character, who's a member of the old generation of replicants, says something about how the old ones run away and the new ones don't. The other big difference is that these, I think they're the Nexus 8s and maybe subsequent generations in this one, is they don't have that built-in four-year lifespan. They are still mortal, able to be killed, as that first scene demonstrates, but they don't have a clock on them in the same way. And right. I think their colors are even higher than in the first movie. They're up to, like, the cheekbones <laughs> at this point. We open with uh, Ryan Gosling as this replicant cop with the LAPD. One of the movie's few jokes is that the LAPD continues unabated pretty much in its its present day form in, in, in 2049. And his name is Kay. He's, re- he's referred to only by his serial letter. And... Uh, and and what he's sort of he's not unlike the Harrison Ford character at the beginning of the original Blade Runner. He is kind of a depressed and alienated executor of laws that he doesn't necessarily believe in or agree with. Yeah, I mean, he seems to very deliberately echo the original Ford character, both in the wardrobe, which is very similar. And, you know, the look is the hair, just yeah. like Ryan Gosling kind of looks like Harrison Ford in 1981 or 82. But then I, I don't think we spoiled this yet. This is kind of a big spoiler, even though it only happens in the first scene. We basically know right off the bat that Ryan Gosling's character, K, is a, is a replicant, which, of course, the original movie has spawned countless debates over 35 years about whether Harrison Ford's Rick Deckard is a, is a replicant. Yeah, I think right. it's established like three times in the first in the first 10 minutes because there's a, a slightly subtle reference in the dialogue with Dave Bautista then when Kay is walking into the police station someone just bumps into him and calls him skin job and then he goes to his apartment and someone has written like Skinner or something on his door so you are not allowed to miss it well but the trajectory then would be kind of the reverse of Harrison Ford's because Harrison Ford gets thrown into this epistemological haze of not knowing whether it's it's true that he could possibly be a replicant and Ryan Gosling's quest is kind of the opposite he starts to suspect that he might be human or rather be a new kind of replicant that can reproduce and sort of simulate humanity. Right. A replicant who is born and grows up from a baby to an adult rather than a replicant who is created as an adult. Right. Yeah. My, my sort of running stupid joke about this movie for, for weeks was, you know, that in this one, the blades run you. And that turns out to <laughs> not to be totally wrong. Like it is kind of what if we took the other one, but backwards. Except I've never understood what the Blade Runner thing even means since they don't don't even kill with blades. I think it's just the rule of cool. I think like they just came up with it because it sounds cool and it does sound cool. And I'm not mad at it, but (laughs) I don't think there's any explanation whatsoever. No, it was not. I mean, that title came like kind of late in the game. It's not actually it is in the dialogue of this movie, but it's not in the first. I think they had a bunch of other titles and and the novel that the original is taken from is called Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which is obviously not a good movie title. Right. But Uh, it's it's still one of the best book titles of all time. Okay, what are we going to talk about next? We can talk about the discoveries that he starts to make about his imagined past. I also at some point want to talk about the production design and art direction and just look of the movie. Is there some particular path that you guys want to go down now? Yeah. And then I think we should just talk about a few of the kind of big 
effects set pieces and science fiction set pieces in this movie, of which I thought I think there are some good ones, though I don't think they really have much to do with the plot of the movie. So an example of that is one of the next scenes is, you know, as you mentioned, Sam, Kay goes home and we meet his kind of like Stepford wife like hologram live in roommate slash lover who is played by an actress named Anna de Armas. She'll conform to his every desire. And there's like an extremely creepy and I think quite successful sex scene that goes like deep into the uncanny valley between them that I think is worth talking about. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about that, especially in insofar as it's a real extrapolation of her. You know, I thought that the, the girlfriend, the digitally projected holographic girlfriend was sort of a a more elaborate and darker imagining of what Scarlett Johansson's character was in her. Of course, she's just a voice in her, and here she has a, a projected body, but it still isn't a real fleshly body. But so then what does she do about that for us? Well, she goes out and, you know, gets a prostitute who has a physical body and brings her back and so that, like, he can have physical sex with this prostitute while imagining that it's actually sex with her because he maybe actually really cares about her. And it, it's just this scene that's very evocative of, you know, pornography and very evocative of when people have sex with someone while imagining that that person is someone else. And it's more than just imagining. It seems like there's some sort of implication that she's sort of digitally blending or something like that. With she the, says, with like, the hold, hold while I sink. Like, there's Mackenzie Davis, who plays the, the prostitute, right. is comes in. And it's interesting because she's someone who Gosling's character is kind of rejected in a previous scene. And it sort of um, the movie sort of skips over the question of whether or not, like, androids want to have sex in the first place. And then uh, his hot Siri um, whose name is, is technically Joy, J-O-I, because um, this is a super subtle movie. Um, she apparently contacts Mackenzie Davis and gets her to come back and then says, you know, hold while I sink. So Mackenzie Davis kind of holds this position and, and she kind of gets this other digital body superimposed on herself, but it doesn't quite take. So there are all these shots of Gosling's head from behind with one set of hand caressing him that, that sort of starts turning into two sets of hands. Um, the real person in the hologram kind of will sink and then and then blur. So it's a, yeah, it is I mean, an extremely creepy moment in a way that I'm not like 100% the movie knows what to do with. Like I, I get the idea behind it, but it is a little too reminiscent of, of porn in some ways. But I want to yeah. stand up for the Joy character and how she's written into the movie. And, and she also reappears later in this kind of giant projected digital form we can talk, talk about. But the fact that she is given some form of subjectivity and that she seems, in fact, to be in love with Ryan Gosling and to be willing. Later on, she essentially risks her life. She says, I'm willing to be put into this form. You know, she can basically be sort of shrunk down into this little handheld device and carried around. But that also makes her much more vulnerable to being destroyed because if that device is lost, she's lost forever. And there's some sense that she has agency and will and that she wants to be with him, even if it means her potential destruction. Did you actually care about her? It it sounds like maybe you did. I found, you know, I think one of the reasons that this movie does not really work as entertainment and by kind of big blockbuster standards is that it's really hard to care about any of these people. I mean, it's obviously the movie is obviously trying to, you know, ask to what extent replicants and humans really are different, just like the original movie. But like the characters are almost entirely characterless. You know, she is one of the characters, I guess, who has some of the most 
defining characteristics, maybe, although they're entirely subservient. And there's like eventually a death scene with her that made me feel absolutely nothing. And one of the reasons the original kind of comes closer to working is that there's somewhat more ambiguity about whether Harrison Ford is human. And to the extent that we come to believe it's a replicant, it's usually it's you know more towards the end of the movie. Yeah, I mean, that, that scene you mentioned is where she gets, um, she has, as you mentioned, Dana, kind of been downloaded. She has desynced from the cloud and been, you know, downloaded into this handheld device. And then an, another replicant whose name I'm happy to point out is Love, L-U-V, <laughs> um, yet, yet more subtlety, stomps on the device and crushes her. And I felt kind of at that moment, it's one of those things where you're watching a movie and you feel like there's like a structural imperative to care. You know, you're like the way this scene right. is like set up and what the music is telling me, I'm definitely like supposed to be feeling something there. And then it, and you just kind of do like a little gut check. And I was just kinda like, no, like, I mean, I felt I felt bad for her and sort of for the character. But it was some of it was for like the way that the movie had used her. Yeah, I mean, to the extent the original movie makes you care about anyone, it's probably um, Roy Batty, the Rutger Hauer character, who at least gets that one great, you know, incredibly famous tears and rain monologue but this movie just doesn't have anything like that i don't think but i don't i mean i I was asking you dana like did you care that in that scene when she died i mean maybe not when she gets stomped but that moment when she's when he drives her to i forget where but he drives her to some location where she is endangered because she's been downloaded and it's not her death but it's a moment when she kind of is flickering out in and out of vision to him and, and kind of reaching out to him yeah, I mean, I cared about her as much as I cared about any character in this somewhat slick and kind of hard to identify with anyone sort of movie. And then later on, after she's gone, there's a moment when he's, you know, wandering miserably through the wet streets of, of L.A. with the ash raining down. And there's a really cool, I mean, some of the best sci-fi stuff in this movie, just some of the best uh, speculation about the future sort of moments involve these giant figures of women that that trod around the city who are big holographic projections who are essentially walking ads. So they're like a 3D version of those geisha billboards from the first Blade Runner. And very, very early on, you see one who's a ballerina. So people are scuttling down this, you know, dark street that looks sort of like a Hong Kong alleyway or something. And there's these huge point shoes dancing in the street. And you're aware that, you know, she's some sort of advertisement for something you don't know what. But then much later you see, and if I'm not incorrect, it's the same actress. You see a giant yeah. joy, right? A giant kind of naked <laughs> purplish blue joy walking around in the streets selling herself, essentially. She um, addresses Ryan Gosling, not seeming to know that, you know, some version of herself was his girlfriend previously, and kind of solicits him to buy some little life-size version of herself. And those moments that are both sort of the future of technology and the future of prostitution, you know, and maybe the future of love relationships, those seemed legitimately sci-fi to me, like Philip K. Dick kind of sci-fi, where there's a visually arresting image that also makes you think about something and extrapolate some sort of trend into the future in a way that's interesting. Those those moments seem to me not just kind of a cool, glitzy thing to look at, but they seem like an actual moment of, of science fiction thoughtfulness. It felt like a little telling to me that the moment in that scene that you're talking about, which is kind of right before the big uh, confrontation at the end, the moment that got me emotionally there was not the side of the actress who was, you know, naked and, and reaching out to Ryan Gosling. And I mean, she's also like 400 feet tall or something at that point. Um, but the, the introduction to that moment is his ringtone for his little personal device is the kind of core motif from Peter and the Wolf. And that's kind of a, a you know recurring motif, not surprisingly, through the movie. And you kind of hear that as the introduction to there's this big billboard over here. And like that, that moment got me like the little musical callback got me in the way that the 
the visuals just because you're looking at this sort of 200 foot tall neon pink woman you know i'm just looking kind of looking at the spectacle at that point i I feel like it's hard to connect with deeper message or emotional current in the scene because it's just kind of a cool ass scene you know and Mm -hmm. it's hard to you know so much of the movie kind of tilts to that side of things so you know it's this simple little musical thing that i had more of a reaction to i think i wonder what it means that peter and the wolf is his ringtone that's something that comes back again and again i mean obviously it's associated with childhood it's like a music you know an an album that you play for children and a lot of this movie is about the question of childhood and whether he really had one or he just has an implanted memory of his childhood but i don't know what peter and the wolf's doing i mean it's such a referency movie i mean i don't think we have time to go through all of the things but there's peter and the wolf there's pale uh, fire yeah pinocchio yes there's a a very you know like there's a copy of pale fire laying around his case apartment which is also quoted from yeah what's no idea why that's in there i didn't i didn't make sense of the peter and the wolf thing either i mean the pinocchio thing is obvious yeah and then there's i mean there's a a ton of we could literally spend this entire entire podcast just talking about like the shout outs to the bible in this there are, are a million of them it's it's kind of challenging mother i think for the most you know bible blockbuster of the fall season i didn't really make anything of any of those like they didn't add anything to me it just felt like the movie was kind of a mess and throwing stuff out there but it wasn't adding up to anything i mean i think you can kind of put them together with some effort but i don't you know as a, as in mother i'm not 100% sure they're kind of all born out there's one particular moment where the movie hinges on the existence of this, what may be a, a human replicant or a replicant replicant baby, depending on where you come down on, on well, what Harrison Ford's character is. You know, people are, are chasing after it. And there's a moment where love, the uh, replicant says, find the child. And then the next shot is of a glowing light in the firmament. Later, Ryan Gosling's character is given the name Joe, like Joseph. Joseph. So there's a lot of annunciation messiah second coming kind of stuff in here right but it just seems muddled to me because like his name is joseph like the father of jesus he ultimately jumping way ahead sacrifices himself like jesus himself her name is rachel which doesn't really you know map onto the new testament at all there's a sort of thing with twins and who is the real twin that is kind of like jacob and esau ish but but like that doesn't map onto the Rachel story quite right either because Rebecca is the mother of Jason, if I'm remembering correctly, is the mother of Jacob. And he's, it just seems like a mess and, to me. Yeah, Jared Leto talks about angels a ton. Yeah, but I, I think it's kind of a grab bag. You know, it's, the, you know, makes these things seem resonant. But I mean, this is, and this is a gripe I have with Denis Villeneuve movies as a whole, is I think they have a way of, you know, seeming or presenting themselves as being about more than they are. You know, they mm-hmm. have this kind of, you know, superficial profundity or this kind of, you know, especially in this one, this this kind of, you know, very ponderous quality to them. And then when you dig under them, you really don't get too far before you start to hit rock bottom. Yeah, this isn't the kind of movie that you that bears a lot of thinking about, but it is a sensation movie. Unless we haven't talked much about like how it feels to watch this movie because it is, you know, we're all sort of mocking the the ponderous script, but there's something remarkable about this movie and a great deal of it comes from the production design and the cinematography. Either one of you want to tackle that? It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. 
I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I think that it's easy to credit Roger Deakins with a huge proportion of what is great about the movie. This, you know, Roger Deakins is the cinematographer. He's, you know, arguably the greatest cinematographer of his generation. Maybe you could argue for like Emmanuel Lebesky or something. He's been nominated for 13 Oscars and yet not won once, but maybe will win this time. And his movies always just look better than pretty much all of the pretty much any movie by anyone else and Denis Villeneuve has worked with him a lot and I kind of feel like Villeneuve has gotten a lot of credit for stuff that is really more has more to do with Roger Deakins it looks amazing I kind of just enjoyed it as cinematography and I think Villeneuve does have a visual imagination I I don't know if he has a lot else than that he is interested in puzzles and they usually uh work out in a way that is satisfying but i find his movies to be pretty humorless and they usually don't make me feel very much yeah i mean it it is incredible to look at i mean and and yeah deacons and the dennis gassner who's the production designer and has worked with deacons a lot actually i think on maybe at least half a dozen coen brothers movies and he also did did skyfall with deacons it looks incredible i I have a friend who said i think that every shot in the movie is the best shot i've ever if you've ever seen um, it just keeps knocking you over with incredible shot after incredible shot. A lot of the incredibleness, I would say, hinges on uh, scale, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. there's there's this really, really huge sense of the bird's eye view that we're taking on this world so that you see not only, you know, the apartments they live in, but the whole vast ruined scape of the city and this never explained huge seawall, which seems to be, you know, the result of global warming being that much more advanced that yeah. all the cities have to be walled off from the sea. Yeah, I mean, one of the images that that really struck me early on is you think of the first movie and you think of these kind of high, narrow, neon lit kind of, you know, techno canyons through the, the Los Angeles of 2019. And one of the early images in this movie after the first scene, which is kind of out in the country somewhere, is K kind of flying high over the city. And you see these kind of narrow canyons of light running through it. But the overwhelming impression is just of kind of this brownish, gray, colorless metropolis of just all these tenement blocks kind of crammed in close together. And then you see these very narrow rivers of light running through it. And it's a very different – you can kind of see the original Blade Runner down in the cracks somewhere. But it's a very good sign of how this movie is going to be different from the first. I feel like it's very telling that we keep talking about everything but the plot of this movie (laughs) and the characters and so on. We should probably do that, even though maybe none of us care that much. I'm like Sam, though. I actively dislike what this movie does with its plot and what it means thematically. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, then let's get into that. There's a lot to get into. We don't have to get into every detail. But let's talk about how Ryan Gosling's character, Kay, starts to investigate his possibly fake childhood. And, And we should also at some point mention Jared Leto, who is in a way an important part of this movie, but also drops out of it for 45 minutes at a time. Yeah, I mean, Leto has, I think, just two scenes, kind of one at the beginning and one at the end, if I'm remembering correctly. And he is kind of the the Tyrell of this movie. The, the backstory of the movie that is in those opening credit cards is that the Tyrell Corporation, which was kind of the, you know, Omnicorp of the first one, um, there was a kind of replicant rebellion. The Tyrell Corporation went out of business basically went bankrupt. And then Jared Leto's company, which I think is called Wallace, bought it up and has kind of taken it in in a new direction. And he is trying to 
bring the replicants from being sort of, you know, hundreds or thousands into millions and trying to come up with a way for them to be self-replicating so that they can, he can kind of exponentially increase production. Right. But he is not at all interested in uh, replicant liberation, right? I mean, he's also seems to be the engineer who made them more compliant who, who helped create that second generation of more compliant. Yeah, and there's a very ugly scene early on where a, a naked and, of course, female replicant kind of, you know, is dropped out of this big, it's almost like a kind of, you know, cake froster or something, like just dropped out of this big plastic bag onto the floor and is kind of shivering there and covered in gelatinous goo. And then he lifts her up and, and checks her midsection, presumably to see if she is finally succeeded in creating one with a functioning womb, decides he has not and just, you know, takes out a knife and just slashes her. You don't, quite see the wound but you kind of assume it's just slashing her right through the middle um so he has no you know, replicants are not alive to him you know tyrell in the first movie was somebody who really seemed to be pushing the replicants towards a certain ideal certainly with like the the sean yen's character rachel you know he said she was special and leto's character in this movie is you know he really just wants to make kind of obedient drones yeah, they're just like a means to an end so that they can travel even further into other planets and stuff. And then so Ryan Gosling's character, Kay, yeah, they they discover that there may be this child out there um, who is the offspring of a replicant. And the Jared Leto character wants to find that child so he can like start breeding replicants and k is just kind of assigned to find the child and then the mystery becomes whether or not he is that child because and you guys might have to help me with this he has long had this memory of a wooden horse um, that was like placed in a furnace when he was supposedly running around as a child but then he eventually like ends up in that same place with the furnace which is like among all those orphans in I guess it was San Diego that Sam described and when he realized it's an actual physical horse he thinks oh this you know might actually be a real memory so I guess it's kind of the reverse of the original Blade Runner with the unicorn. The sort of crux of the first movie is that the the way that they raid replicants sort of psychologically stable is by giving them implanted memories from real people. It, by the by 2049, real memories it's becoming legal to put real human memories in replicants. So they are there's he visits kind of a, a memory creator played by Carla Jury and to check whether this memory he has is actually real because and and she says something about how well you know the difference with real memories is they have feeling attached to them or something like that. So she puts his head in this kind of, you know, futuristic viewmaster thing and somehow manages to look at her memories as himself and says um, something like, yes, this happened to someone. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's left ambiguous at that point whether or not it is it is his memory, but it is a real memory, which is makes him kind of, uh, I guess, to to use a, a phrase appropriate from this universe, a, kind of a unicorn. So there's kind of a, a squishy midsection in the middle of the movie where he's discovering all of this stuff and there's a lot of exploration of the world and world building. But really things get going when he meets Harrison Ford, which comes pretty late, like the last quarter of the movie or so. So how does that happen? Let's talk about that encounter. It happens in San Diego, right? In the garbage scow land? Or it doesn't. I mean, it happens in what's sort of this, I guess this is this supports the idea that there was a nuclear attack because it is in this very kind of irradiated no man's land that is opposed to kind of, you know, modest greenery of the first section and this incredibly kind of, you know, brown and gray um, LA that we've been in is is kind of bright red and dust. And he's sort of holed up in this abandoned casino all by himself with only a dog for company. Right. And it sort of seems like he's been there. He's been just hiding out from the Blade Runners himself for all those years, right? He's been like a, a, a loner 
recluse. Yes, and we and we find out at that point, which we sort of intuited by then, that he is, you know, the father of this, you know, mysterious child. Although he has never, in fact, met the child, um, and doesn't even we find out at the end kind of even know its its gender, um, because he, you know, felt they decided that because he and and Rachel had run off at the Rachel end of the being first the movie. Sean Young character, yes, yes. yeah, because they had kind of run off and being hunted. That the uh, I think he says it's some, you know, sometimes. It, you know, in order to love somebody, you have to be a stranger. I think it's the the Harrison Ford line in there, which is like something that would have been taken from the the bad voiceover added to the first movie. And so, yeah, so he's kind of hiding out, and and Gosling kind of finally tracks him down, and then he's followed by two you know separate groups of people who you know kidnap Harrison Ford, and then that leads to this big you know fight in the and water. Ryan, this and, is yeah. one question I have: Is Ryan Gosling shoots down the whatever? Um, flying car that has Harrison Ford and the character Love in it. And he shoots down a couple cars, I think, but like everybody in the one flying car dies, but everyone in the Harrison Ford flying car doesn't. But they almost do. And it's like, wait, how did he know that they weren't going to die when he just shot down Harrison Ford while trying to save him? I don't know. I mean, maybe I misunderstood that, but it's just like one example of a number of these things in this movie that like just felt either A, really hazy to me, or B, the more you thought about them, the more they seemed to kind of fall apart. Right. You know, one of the things that's that's different about this this movie that I don't think we've really, really talked about is it obviously takes, you know, tremendous inspiration from the first one in, in terms of, you know, its themes and, it, and its visual design, you know, including the use of completely sort of incredibly cool but totally unmotivated uh, light sources. Like, they're just scenes in, in Jerry Letter's headquarters where it looks like he's like built his you know evil lair under a swimming pool for some reason the first one is kind of you know futuristic noir even without the the voiceover that was added to it and this this movie does not have that structure it, it's much more kind of a sort of an android tarkovsky movie than it is a you know future detective movie although they are still like drinking all the time just like in the original yes. like noir detectives i mean who wouldn't <laughs> if you lived in this future yeah, yeah. So in the scene where he encounters Harrison Ford in the in the abandoned casino, just psychologically, I know this movie doesn't excel at psychological subtlety, but what do you think is supposed to be happening between them? I mean, Gosling is trying to figure out whether this is his father, right? But Harrison Ford has to be sure that it's not his son, right? Wait, well, I, I don't think he knows. Right? Not, he doesn't sure he know even, who or his he doesn't, child or he doesn't, is. I don't, I'm sure he suspects that Gosling might be his son at that point or wait, wait 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 let's retrace what happened in between 2019 and 2049 they got together they had twins correct and one of the twins didn't survive but ryan gosling thinks that he is the boy twin or i mean that see that is a part that, that's confusing to me there is a scene where, where Kay is kind of looking at these um dna of these two samples and one is male and one is female but they're they're identical um which i'm not I, not I even sure, not even sure how that works, but um, but, but in replicant but, land, but I don't know. He's chromosomes told, are different. You know, then he's told no two creatures can have the same DNA, so one of these is a copy of the other. So I'm not. Sh- I don't think she had twins, but I think it's suggested that the the child's DNA was kind of copied into another replicant. But so, but Harrison Ford obviously knows whether he had a boy or a girl, presuming he was there, right? I mean, he and Rachel did actually reproduce at one point, and then. She died, unless he was around lost when the child. child was born, right? Yeah, I think so. The I idea think is he, he left maybe. Oh, that's right. Yeah. He says he was in hiding. Okay, so he doesn't even know if he has a child or if the child is still alive. So they're both trying to suss out like the same, same mystery. Right. So I think at the time the viewer suspects, oh, this is probably a son fighting his father, which gives this all, all, all sorts of 
vague, ponderous significance that actually ends up really up to nothing. A, a, a ponderous blockbuster with daddy issues. You don't say. Yeah. yeah. Right. But <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I don't know. We, I guess we should just jump ahead. So uh, Kay, a.k.a. Joe, ends up not being the child. The child, and this is actually a legitimately good twist, I think. The child is actually the memory maker who actually lived the memory that he had of the wooden horse. And then that memory was implanted into Joe slash K, Ryan Gosling's character. Right. So it turns out this memory maker, who we've only visited once in the movie and who lives because of autoimmune disorders in this huge bubble and just spends her whole day kind of creating these technological memories to be implanted in replicants is the uh, the actual one. <laughs> she is the daughter of, of Sean Young and Harrison Ford. And Joe takes him to see her. And it went, and, and, and then, I mean, as you've, you mentioned earlier, and then Joe kind of sacrifices himself. And the very final scene is him lying on the steps outside the memory maker's house, kind of giving it up, giving up his ghost in the snow. And I, I'd be curious if this is the part that Sam also hated and kind of made him... <laughs> Uh, appreciate the met like the themes of this movie much less because it it was for me i mean there somebody tells Kay, i can't remember who that like the most human thing you can do is to die for someone else or something yeah so that's what he does and so it, 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 it's which, the giving tree all over again this is our second <sighs> giving tree podcast in a row right and i mean the most interesting thing to me about the original movie besides the cinematography and in the, the its place in movie history and so on is you know at least it has a very interesting question at the center of like what actually separates humans from artificial intelligence which it poses in this extremely challenging way by making you know rather than your typical movie robots it's these replicants who are like virtually identical to humans in almost every single way and then it doesn't really answer that question. It just it just gives you like the most challenging possible version of that question. And the new movie gives an answer to that question that removes all the mystery. So A, it removes all the mystery, and B, it's just like an incredibly dumb answer to the question. What's like, the answer? Well, to, to, I'm taking it as the answer, like in the sense that it's said by a character in the movie that what makes a human human is. Or the most human thing one can do is dying for someone else. Which, like, I don't know. That's not that distinct to humans, actually. Yeah, it's, just, mean, it's a dumb answer to me. You asked me to kind of clarify this at, at the beginning. But, I mean, yeah, the, the point for me that the, this movie takes a nosedive is the point that Harrison Ford shows up. I don't know that that's necessarily Harrison Ford's fault. I mean, some of it is, you know, you've seen the trailer or the poster. You know he's going to be in the movie. But it takes, I think, an hour and 40 minutes to get there. So a little voice in the back of your head kind of keeps asking when you're going to get to the fireworks factory. But it's also because that's when it starts becoming a more dutiful sequel and doing the things that sequels are supposed to do. Um, there's a dreadful scene near the end. I mean, the real low point of the movie is there's this long scene um, with Harrison Ford and, and Jared Leto where they kind of, you know, talk, you know, talk through more stuff about angels and, you know, humanity and blah, blah, blah. And it just it just feels like it goes on forever. And really, the movie is, is I think, pretty low on momentum at that point anyway. And that just completely saps whatever is left. And then, yeah. And then, as you say, it kind of hinges on this question of sacrifice, which I don't think is a really thoughtful or interesting this, this movie maybe hinges less on the question of humanity and more on the question of freedom, because almost all of the characters in this movie are replicants. 
And the humans are kind of less interesting and in some ways kind of less quote unquote human than the replicants are. You know, there are points in the movie where I'm like, well, I think it's been like half an hour since we've had like a significant line from a character who's not a replicant. Right. You know, one of the things that happens in that Harrison Ford, Jared Leto scene is kind of revisits the question from the first movie of whether or not Deckard is a replicant. The scene's a little convoluted, but I I think Jared Leto's answer is yes, but also maybe no. Yeah, I think he just says yes, no. Yeah, which is <laughs> there's a lot of gobbledygook in that sequence. Yeah, at some point somebody says the line that says that somebody is mad as thunder or something, and it's like, what kind of <laughs> analogy or what kind of simile is that? And one of the things this movie does, I mean, it has a very kind of you know bass heavy. Um, it makes it sound like the theater you're watching it in is a, is about to you know be shaken to pieces at several points during the movie. But it has this new kind of you know Hans Zimmer score. And then it, when it gets to that last scene, when Gosling is kind of lying there dying in the snow, and it brings back the 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 tears and rain motif from the Vangelis score from the original, and it really like that really reminded me of kind of the emotions attached to the original movie that I was not feeling in in this one. The original movie is not one I have like sort of a profound emotional response to across the board, apart from just sitting there mouth open and like looking at how amazing it is to look at. But yeah, but that last Rutger Hauer scene, the, the Tears and Rain scene is is just legitimately incredible. And I, I think reminding you of that at this movie is what's supposed to be this movie's emotional high point really is a way of, of measuring how far it has not gotten there. We should maybe note that I believe the Rutger Hauer monologue was partly or wholly written by Rutger Hauer. He wrote the, so, yeah, Tears and Rain is his line, yeah. Are right. you serious? So maybe yep. they should have gotten Rutger yes, Hauer to do a rewrite of this movie, which might have given it some scenes that actually had some emotion in them. I can't believe the best movie, the best line in the movie was written by the actor. You mean improvised on set or he brought it or in it, saying, I want to In rehearsal, like there's a, there's a three and a half hour making of documentary that comes with the, the you know, various... Uh, editions of it and there are i think even the same person gives different accounts of whether or not he kind of brought it up in pre-production or improvised it on set but yeah but it was basically a case of there was the kind of this long monologue with all the science fiction jargon in it and rutger howard was just kind of like yeah i don't want to say that what if i hold a dove and say something about tears and rain mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so. works for prince yeah Okay, well, it seems like we've gotten more and more negative about Blade Runner 2049 as we talk about it. So you wouldn't send those who were fans of the original and want to see what could possibly have happened to its world to see this? I mean, it's amazing to look at. So I I feel hesitant to tell people not to go. I would just kind of say, know what you're in for. It's not something that I kind of enjoyed. I'm glad I looked at it for two hours and 40 odd minutes. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I said at the beginning, I would, I would, I would recommend it basically on the on the same grounds, but not to everyone. I will just make a prediction that there's a backlash to this movie coming, and that it's going to be pretty vicious, and that fans of the movie will start looking for ambiguities that I'm not sure are really there. Like they might just come from desperation. Like I think fans are going to start saying the last thirty minutes are a dream, or actually, Ron Gasling dies in a scene seventy five percent of the way through, or whatever that that usual. Right. Uh, retrofitting. Yeah. I mean, it, it it does succeed on one level, which is the sort of woe dude spectacle yeah. level. Um, and, and in that sense, it, it echoes the original, which I think you could kind of argue is less memorable as a movie than it is as just a, a visual and oral experience and, and as, as a huge influence on all science fiction movies afterwards. But but one thing you have to say about the original Blade Runner, as imperfect and maybe ponderous as it may be, is that it has the courage of its own convictions. It's a completely original vision, right? And it's a science fiction movie that 
knew exactly what it wanted to do and accomplished that particular thing. And this movie, you obviously, the mere fact that it's following the footsteps of an earlier movie, you can't you can't give it that credit. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming in to spoil Blade Runner 2049. And uh, yeah, let's let's spoil something again very soon. Thank you, Dana. Thanks, Dana. If you enjoyed this Slate Spoiler special and you want to subscribe to our feed and Apple Podcasts, please do so and leave a comment or review. We would be very grateful and we're happy to have this podcast back. Our producer today is June Thomas. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtai. We'll talk to you again in two weeks.